If you have your Bibles with you, would you open them and turn with me uh, to the book of Titus. The book of Titus, you can certainly follow along with the insert found in your bulletin as well, although we'll be veering away from that insert as well. If you've been here recently, you know that this is not where we belong. Um, well, it is, it, of course, it's where we belong. We're in God's Word, uh, but it's not where we have been. Uh, we have been in our study of First Peter, and uh, we're we're diverting from that this week. And the reason we're diverting from that this week is because if you've looked in your bulletin, uh, we are doing something very unique this morning, something that's not an every week occurrence here at APC. We are installing and ordaining new officers. And this is a big deal. This is a big deal because leadership, as we were reminded there in Isaiah 57, 56, it's a big deal that among God's people are faithful leaders who want to honor the Lord and to walk in his ways. And so I just thought it was a good time for us as a church to step back from 1 Peter and to think more acutely, more specifically about our life together, our mission together as a church, and these leaders that are tasked with fueling and supporting the mission of this church. And so we, we turn to Titus, which is, for those of you who know the scriptures, it's one of the pastoral epistles one of the epistles that Paul wrote to young pastors in the first century and by extension to their church and by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit to us here today. Paul's writing the church and specifically Titus concerning what he needed to focus on. And I picked this passage in part because it's not too much of a divergence from where we were in 1 Peter just last week when we focused on the need for us as a church to be united in mind. Remember, that was one of the first exhortations. United in mind. This is in, very, in many ways an extension of that exhortation to the church to live in harmony with one another. And so I'd invite you, if you're able to stand for the reading of God's Word this morning, Titus chapter 3, I'm going to read just two verses to get us started, read a few more as we get into it a little bit. This is probably going to be a little briefer as well, uh, because we have some other mini-sermons coming up uh, in a minute, and so uh, just prep yourself for that. Um, I don't want to hear any you-hoos, though. Um, Titus chapter 3, verses 8 and 9. Paul says this, the saying is trustworthy. And I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. But avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Likely all of you know this, but 2020 is, among other things, it's an Olympic year. It's not just an Olympic year, but it's everyone's favorite kind of Olympics. 
Well, maybe not everyone's. It's the Summer Olympics. Sprinting and swimming and pole vaulting and even skateboarding. First time this year, skateboarding. We love the Olympics, especially the Summer Olympics around the Hitchcock House. And I'm always amazed at Olympic athletes for more than one reason, but one of the reasons I'm amazed at Olympic athletes is because they're, the pinnacle of their sport comes once every four years. And I know there's those things called the world championships in between Olympic years where they essentially compete against the same people that they compete against in the Olympics. But the world champions, it's not the, it's not the same thing to be a world champion as it is to be an Olympic champion. There's a certain prestige and and lasting legacy to that notion. And so for these athletes, there's this window of opportunity that if missed, results in, in four more years of wondering, of waiting, of training, Because of that fact, these athletes have an incredible focus, an incredible single-mindedness. It's amazing to think during the last four years while we have been doing thousands of things, mostly on our couches or at our desks, since we watched the closing ceremony, some of us of the Olympics in Rio, these athletes have been at work. They've had one-track minds. Literally, some of them have been on tracks, one track, over and over and over again. Every day they've awoken with one thing that's going to guide their priorities, it's going to guide what they eat, it's going to guide who they spend time with. In some way, I think Paul takes us there today. He takes the entire church to that single-minded devotion. A single-minded devotion that we need to hear and be reminded of. And so I want to give us just two encouragements this morning, briefly. Two encouragements from these two verses in Titus 3. And the first one is this. We must, ne- we must let nothing distract us from the gospel. I'm talking to you, the church, to me, the church. We're all part of this church. We must let nothing distract us from the gospel. We live in an age of distraction where people are prone to distraction. But in regards to the ministry that God gives his church and what Christ is wanting to form and do through us, we must have a single-minded focus. He says the word avoid. Avoid. Don't get sucked into. This kind of thing was apparently rampant in the early church, not just the church on Crete, but the church in general. Paul had a similar warning for young Timothy, the other pastor in the ancient world. In 2 Timothy 2, he says, remind them of these things, charge them before God, not to quarrel about words, which does no good, but only ruins the hearers. Have nothing to do with foolish, ignorant controversies. You know that they breed quarrels. 
See, the ancient church on multiple fronts is easily getting sidetracked and spun up and not on its mission. So we come to Titus chapter 3, verses 8 and 9. We hear this, and maybe we think, yeah, right. How are we supposed to avoid controversies in the church? Well, Paul is not forbidding all controversy in the church. Jesus himself stirred up a lot of controversy when he walked the earth. His followers followed suit with what they said. No, instead the church is given specific instructions. Avoid the kind of controversies that are foolish, he says. Genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law. Now, we don't know exactly what this meant specifically, in Crete, how it specifically manifested itself. We do know that that Greek philosophical thought was rampant in that day, that there were lots of people who just liked to sit around and ponder the subtleties of life. We also know that Jewish thought was prevalent in the early church, and it was always pushing against this notion of Jew and Gentile. There were those who liked to appeal to the Old Testament for this or that, as far as excluding some from fellowship if their conclusions weren't followed. And so that explains some of these words that Paul uses here to Titus. Genealogies may may have had something to do with digging things up and tracing people's uh, family line and, and the religious significance of one's family line. Dissensions could be about a number of things. The point is, is there an unhealthy craving for controversy and disagreement? Quarrels about the law no doubt refers to the use of the Old Testament as a springboard to extra-biblical instruction for these young believers. Pharisees were good at that. Jesus rebuked them for that. It continued in the early church. We don't know if these things that Paul is addressing to Titus. We don't know if those things rose to the level of heresy, but at the very least, they were distracting. They were unhelpful as to what the church was to be about. The gospel and the good works that flow from the gospel. And so the Spirit of God is reminding not just the first century church, but Ascension Presbyterian to avoid camping out on things that aren't revealed. Certainly those things, some of them are cause for concern and discussion and speculation and maybe even disagreement. But above all, focus on what is certain. Focus on the gospel. We must not be distracted from the gospel. Does this apply to us today? Absolutely. Not with genealogies and dissensions and quarrels about the law so much, but with politics, which is the political party of the Bible, who should we vote for? Theo's gonna settle that in discipleship hour in a few months. Angels, heaven, how many books are there 
talking about people dying and going to heaven or hell and then telling us all about it, origins, the end times, how will it all happen, how is it all going to go down, talk to me, I need to know, we need to figure this out. Parenting styles, what does the Bible say about raising our kids, what school should we send them to, there's a myriad of things that are important that the Bible does speak about to varying degrees, but when the discussions and debates in those things become paramount, and the gospel, and the harmony of the body, and the mission of the church becomes compromised, we are losing our way. May we be those who first and foremost are united around the gospel. Because what's at stake is our, is our witness, as we talked about last week. Our witness to a watching world. It's interesting that Paul tells Titus here that if there are those in this specific context, that if there are those that, who are distracting and dividing God's people from their primary mission of gospel and good works, if there are those that are doing that in Titus' church, he needs to deal with them. We didn't read it, but you can look at verse 10. As, if, as for a person who stirs up division after warning him once, then twice, have nothing more to do with them. Right, this, is, this is church discipline. Two warnings, then removal. And we're tempted to say, well, that's not nice. It's a bit harsh. After all, that's just the way they are. They like to argue about things. And yet God, the long-suffering God, says absolutely not. When the gospel is at stake, when the reputation of the bride is on the line, that must be done. And that's a good way to think about it. It's a good analogy for us to have. Husbands, what lengths would we go to to protect our brides and their reputation? And that's exactly what Christ is wanting to do. As he calls his church, let nothing distract you from the gospel. Don't get all spun up here and there. Love one another. Live in harmony with one another. Do the good works that the gospel calls you to do. That's the first encouragement. The second is this. We must get the gospel right. We must get the gospel right. If we're not going to be distracted from the gospel, we've got to know what the gospel is. Going back to the Olympics, these athletes can spend years preparing and honing their craft with single-minded focus, but at the end of it all, when the rubber hits the road, they have this one competition, they have this one chance to get it right. And if that single-minded focus for the last four years has been using faulty equipment or outdated techniques, then it will all be for naught. In the same way, we as a church, if we're going to be all about the gospel, if we're not going to be distracted from the gospel, we must know and be clear on what the gospel is. Because if the enemy can't distract us from it, maybe he can confuse us about what exactly we are supposed to be united around. So how would you answer that question? What is the gospel? It's a simple question, right? Seems so simple. Seems like a simple answer. There's a great little book called What is the Gospel that was written not too long ago by a pastor, Greg Gilbert, 
And in his introduction, he says this. He says, my sense is that far too many Christians would answer with something far too short of what the Bible holds out as the gospel of Jesus Christ. Maybe they'd answer, the gospel is that God would forgive your sins if you believe in him. Or they'd say something like, the good news is that God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. Or the gospel is that you are a child of God and God wants his children to be abundantly successful in every way. Some would know that it's important to say something about Jesus' death on the cross and his resurrection, but then again, how does that all fit in? We don't have time this morning to unpack and to go to the the very depths and richness of the gospel. We'd have to preach and study the whole book of Romans for that. And we'll do that maybe someday. Because that's one of the clearest, richest, densest descriptions of what we're saying when we say the gospel. But since we're in Titus, let's jump back to verse 4. Let's just start here. Verse 4, we read it earlier in the service. I'll read it again. When the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy. By the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by His grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Now that's a mouthful. We don't have time to unpack all of that. But we do have time to say five things about what the gospel is. Five things we need to be clear on. Five phrases that come out of this verse I just read. Phrase number one, he saved us. Before our God our creator, we need saving. Everything starts at the beginning, right? At the story of creation, at the refusal of our first parents to obey. That put us in the state that we're in, a state that we're born. And the good news begins by feeling that guilt, feeling that need, feeling that broken relationship between your creator and his creature made in his image. None are righteous, not even one. He saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness. That's the second phrase. What does that mean? Our works are insufficient to save. So he, he saved us, but our works are insufficient to save. We can't climb out of this hole ever. By grace, people do good things. But the good things they do, even the great things that they do, aren't enough to atone for cosmic rebellion and the need for reconciliation with a holy God. And so your generosity won't save you. Your ritual and commitment of going to church won't save you. Because you are, quote unquote, better than the majority of people in the world, that won't save you. The notion that good people have a chance at heaven so 
easily sneaks into our theology. And it shows that we really don't know goodness. We really don't know God's holiness. Our works are insufficient to save. And so the hymn writer says, nothing in my hands I bring. Nothing. Simply to the cross, I claim. He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. Two words. They're not said here. They're said elsewhere by Paul. But God. Right? That's what he says in Ephesians. But God. Yes, our state is hopeless. But God. To that hopeless state, the Holy Spirit intervenes and gives us eyes to see the glory of Christ. Those are two words that we desperately need. The fourth phrase, Jesus justified us. We're justified by his grace. Jesus came to live a righteous life that we can claim as our own. He came to to die an innocent death that we can claim as our own, as payment for sin. He came to rise from the grave, defeating death with the promise that all those who are his will be raised on his coattails. He justified us. And then lastly, we have a future. We have a future, the hope of eternal life. It's the gospel. That is the message that we have. Yes, that message affects social constructs. It affects people's lives and decisions and politics and But that's the message. Our message is not some other message about self-improvement, about fixing the world. Our message is the gospel. The gospel. He saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, by the washing of regeneration, by the Holy Spirit, Jesus justified us, and because of that, we have a future. So, brothers and sisters of Ascension, new officers about to be installed and ordained, let's be about Jesus here. Yes, we have a reformed confessional backbone. We do. It's solid. Yes, we have opinions about things, but let's not let anything trump Jesus. Let's let nothing distract us from him. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for this clear call from the Apostle Paul to Titus, to his church, and to us here today that we need to be about the gospel, we need to be about the good works that flow from the gospel. And as we think about this moment in our lives where 
And, and this moment in our corporate life as we welcome and receive new officers, we pray that we would double down on this central focus of our mission to be a community of worshiping, maturing, and multiplying disciples of Jesus. Oh, Holy Spirit, we need your grace to make that happen. Work that in us. Center us firmly as a church. And and we know it begins in our lives. How many how easily we can live our Monday through Friday lives without even a thought of you at times. May our eyes open, not just by your grace, but with a clear vision of your grace and your goodness and your leading and your presence that we indeed might be a people about the good works that flow from hearts, who have, that hearts that have been changed, hearts that have been justified, men and women who are heirs of eternal life. So Father, this is what you call us to be about. This is what we desire to be about. Make it so, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen.